0: Hey, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Excited to be here with you this morning. I don't get to preach very often, so I'm uh, amped to be able to do it. The communications team emailed me, included Paul this week, and said, hey, what's the title of your sermon going to be? And I've been working really hard, and I I sent it back, and I looked at it. I was like, yep, that's it. And I said, it's called The Immensity of Hope. And Paul immediately texts back and said, I'm surprised you didn't go with A New Hope. And as a Star Wars fan, my head dropped and I was embarrassed at that low-hanging Star Wars fruit that I didn't harvest. I started thinking, can I redream this whole thing? Baby Yoda, baby Jesus, can I make this work? There's always next year. I'm sticking with the immensity of hope. Here we go. Uh, this... My wife's parents live on a lake in west central Minnesota, and for the last 20 plus years that her and I have lived here in Arizona, it's become a yearly ritual that we make a trip in the summer to escape the oppressive heat here and go hang out with them on the lake. You can probably imagine uh, why. The tradition has strengthened as now. We have kids, we have two boys, Asher who's 13, Beck who's eight. Hi boys, they're at home on the live stream. You too, Rach, didn't forget you. And you can imagine they love it. What's there not to love? They get to hang out with grandma and grandpa, they get spoiled, they get to do swimming and boating and motorcycling and fishing and adventuring, and they get to get out of the heat, which everybody enjoys. But this year, like everything this year, COVID has complicated things. We weren't comfortable flying back home, which is what we normally do. And I don't know if you've consulted a map recently, but um, turns out Arizona and Minnesota are like really far away from each other. Uh, But early this summer, as cases in that first wave of COVID were growing here in Arizona, rural Minnesota seemed like a utopia. They had very few cases. There's very few people, frankly. Uh, And so we decided we're going to hatch an escape plan. We're going to make this thing happen. Now, I'll be honest, it wasn't much of a plan because it consisted of loading up Our minivan and driving 2,000 miles across the country. But in those early days of COVID, we felt like a band of hobbits traveling to Mount Doom through the dangerous countryside. And we made it. We made 2,000 miles in record time. We arrived safely at Rachel's parents' home, which is an amazing place just like 50 feet off the water's edge there in rural Minnesota, outside of the bustling metropolis of Dent, population 100. We felt safe. We were excited to be there. This is a place that Rachel's grandparents bought raw land. There was nobody, it was a farmer's land on this uh, lake in the 60s, and they bought themselves a small plot there for $1,000, and then have built a small cabin, which eventually became a small home, which eventually became a little bit bigger home, and in the late 80s, uh, her grandfather retired, and they moved there full-time. Since then, her grandparents have passed away, and now her parents live there full-time, Uh, in this place. And every summer when we go back, we know there's some things we're going to expect. First is some fun and relaxation, but right behind that, there's going to be some work to do. Rachel's the only child, so when we come home, it's really an opportunity to try to serve them and to help around the house and get things done, cleaning and organizing. As you can imagine, in a house that has existed for 60 years, there's always things to do. And this summer, uh, Rachel and her mom were cleaning out a closet And they came across a box of memories that were her grandpa's. And there in that box was the discovery that they came. There was a pile of large two-inch square film negatives, about that high. Uh, Rachel asked her mom, like, what are these? They're just sitting here in the corner of the box. And she said, you know, I'm not 100% sure, but I think those are photos your grandpa took when he was in World War II. We held the negatives up to the light and tried to make out what they were, and we saw what looked like some soldiers and maybe some boats, and we thought that really seems like maybe what this is, and like many men of his generation who experienced that war, he did not speak much about it. We would ask questions, he wouldn't talk about it. So nobody really knew where he had been, what he had seen, what the journey looked like, and he was gone now. And here in my wife's hands were 150 photos taken by her grandfather's own hands on the ground in Europe in the 1940s. So of course, Rachel asked her mom, can I take these and see if I can do something with them? And she was excited about that. And she found a service online that she could send them off to, and she shipped them off into the mail, hoping that they could do something. And last month, an email was in her inbox with 150 digital photos, photos like this. Or this one. It was pretty amazing as we got to peer into this moment in history that looms so large in American history and see these pictures of these people, people that we didn't know, but there they were. One of the things that was amazing is through the photos and the clues that the photos led us to, I was able to, through my nerdy internet research, begin to build a story of what actually went on in her grandpa's life. He was one of five boys in his large Catholic family. All five of them went off to war, to World War II. Uh, One of his brothers died there and is buried in France. At the end of the war, when grandpa returned home, his mother had died while he was gone. and He never got to say goodbye. We discovered that he was part of the 9th Infantry Division. It was the first division ever to be engaged in battle from the US. They landed in North Africa. They battled across Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, before eventually getting on a boat and sailing up to Sicily, where they also battled across the island. They then sailed back to England, where they retrained and resupplied before they deployed to Normandy and landed on the beaches there just four days after D-Day. They marched across the European continent through France before eventually ending up in Germany and ending at this place. Train entrance into an unmarked tunnel. This is a place in central Germany known as Dora Middlebau. It's a concentration camp in which his platoon freed men like that. Guys still dressed in their concentration camp uniforms. I spent a lot of time looking through these photos, mainly because this was the key that unlocked his story, because these concentration camps are very well documented historically, and you can find a lot of pictures of them online. And I was able to match up the photos that we had with photos that we found online and discover where he ended up. I spent a lot of time looking at this photo of these guys trying to imagine the horrors that they experienced, the terror that they experienced in this place. And one thing has actually stood out to me as I've looked on it over and over again. Some of those men are smiling. It's made me think, what, what can induce smiles on the faces of men who have experienced such horror? What could bring about joy while you're still wearing those clothes in that place? It's the arrival of realized hope. See, hope realized is a powerful thing. It transforms situations and fears. It brings clarity in the midst of chaos. Hope that once seemed like a thin dream dreamt to kept the, keep the darkness at bay, when it's realized in its full and glorious potential, it gives birth to joy. Joy that you're seeing being born on the faces of these men right here in this moment. Two weeks after this moment right here was V-Day in Europe. The war was, came to an end and the pictures show that too. Soldiers celebrating, parades in the streets, people rejoicing as European citizens and armed forces rejoiced because the hopes of the end of the war were realized. This picture right here is uh, my favorite one because that guy right there on the right is my wife's grandfather, Bill. When I first saw the pictures before I pieced together the story, my first thought was, man, men in the 40s were way more comfortable with physical affection than I am with my bros. <laughs> and then I realized once I pieced the story together, they're probably enjoying a bottle or three of wine before this photo was taken as they're celebrating the end of war. What we're seeing here is joy demonstrated as soldiers... Realized the hope of making it through alive, of getting a chance to go home and to sleep in their own bed again. Hope realized as occupied nations saw their occupations coming to a close. Hope realized as an overwhelming season of violence was coming to an end. Hope that was realized and immortalized in these photos is the kind of size and scope that we rarely get an opportunity to witness in our lives. I mean, this is hope about life and death, hope about oppression and violence, hope about starvation and financial ruin. Hope comes in all shapes and sizes, but the impact of hope realized is directly tied to the length and the depth at which that hope was felt and needed in the lives of those who were looking to it. It's easy to see things like this living on the knife's edge of life and death in a war or in a concentration camp and understand how that can leave a a huge wake in the lives of people who experience that. But it it happens to us too in things much smaller than life and death. And I'll give you an example of, of something that happened in my life in the fall of 1986. Something happened in American life that changed everything. It gave birth to a $40 billion industry overnight and shaped an entire generation of people. This thing came out. (laughs) The Nintendo Entertainment System. In the fall of 1986, that was released. I was eight years old, and when it came out, it was the only thing that I could think about. I begged my parents to get it for me for Christmas. Begged. Now, My eight-year-old brain could not understand the cost of this to a young family living on a farm in North Dakota. Uh, This week I did some math with an inflation calculator. That's a $500 item in this. I suddenly feel much more sympathy when my kids want a PlayStation 5 and I go, are you kidding me? That was me at eight years old in 1986 begging my parents. And 1986 went by and I had no Nintendo under my tree. I spent all of 1987 pining for this item. I'd go over to my friends who were lucky enough to get one, and I'd stand awkwardly close to them, breathing on their necks, hoping that they would hand me that awkward rectangle controller so I could control Mario for just a minute. I'd beg them to let me use the light gun and shoot at those ducks. I knew I can do better than you. That dog will not laugh at me. 1987, Christmas morning came and I ran to the tree and there was no Nintendo under the tree. And I was devastated. And I spent all of 1988 being equally annoying to all my friends. Many of them who got one on Christmas morning. But Christmas morning 1988, let me tell you what, there was one 10-year-old boy in Transformer Underwaroos that was so excited when him and his little brother opened up finally This item telling you, the depth and the length of the waiting was directly shaping the joy that I experienced as a kid. Because hopes like that, the longer that we wait, the bigger the hope has to be to sustain us. The deeper we feel the longing, the bigger the hope has to be. It's not only that, but hopes that are felt by one child or even a solitary adult or even a small community or a family are dwarfed by the kind of shared hope that is carried collectively in the hearts of millions of people at once, a hope that consumes the space of the hearts and minds of most of the world. The immensity of that kind of hope and its scope and size is almost unfathomable, the kind of hope we talk about in World War II. We rarely see moments like that in this world, and yet I think we might be in the middle of one right now. COVID has driven the entire world to a similar shared hope. Now, we hope for different things. We're hoping for things to return to normal. We're hoping for this to all go away. We're hoping that school can eventually be experienced by our kids the way that it should be. We're hoping that we can go on a date to a restaurant with our spouse that isn't tinged with fear. We're hoping we don't catch it. We're hoping it's not bad if we do. We're hoping that we don't die in a hospital alone. And we're hoping that doesn't happen to our parents. We're hoping for a vaccine. And even when the vaccine's announced, we're hoping we can get in line somewhere to get it. What these two events, World War II and this COVID situation, illustrate is that our greatest joys come about through realized hope solving our greatest fears. In this season, leading up to Christmas, the Advent season is about waiting, the period of waiting, anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. It's expectation. It's hope. And the question that waits before us on this last Sunday before Christmas is this. Have you wrapped yourself in the immensity of hope that this season represents? Can can you share in the longing the world has so long laid in? Do we, as God's people, feel the kind of desperation of hope that will sustain our lives, the kind of hope that would sustain lives through a world war? Maybe that seems out of reach. Do you even have the hope that encapsulates a 10-year-old boy's Christmas dreams? Is our hope big enough to induce the joy that the world needs to see? I'm going to take us to a psalm that I think is going to help us understand and capture the immensity of this hope Before we do, let's pray that God would meet us here this morning. God, we thank you for this season. We thank you for the joy that Christmas brings, even in the midst of chaos that we're experiencing in our world, of uncertainty. God, because we know that through it all, you are there, you are sovereign, and you are good. God, we pray that we would make much of Jesus during this season. We pray that we would be able to focus and rejoice on the hope that he brings. We pray this in his name. Amen. The history of Israel throughout the Old Testament is really about their place in the world and the fact that God has made promises to them, particularly promises around the one who would come and lead them as a people, their Messiah. Lots of scriptures in the Old Testament talk about his coming. Many of the prophets speak in tones of hope to Israel about this Messiah that will arrive during the Christmas season. We talk a lot about those scriptures. We'll go to the prophet Isaiah and talk about what he promised to them as they were in exile about this coming king. But this morning, I want to read us a psalm that I don't think I've ever heard read during the Christmas season, because I think it really does capture the immensity of hope that we should be embracing in our waiting during this season. Psalm 72 is a song, a prayer written for the descendants of King Solomon. King Solomon is the son of King David. King Solomon ruled over what would arguably be the closest thing that Israel ever had to an empire. He was wise, powerful, and wealthy. And this prayer is about his son, the descendant of him who would come and rule in the future. Let's read it together. Psalm 72 opens and says, "'Endow the king with your justice, O God, "'the royal son with your righteousness. "'May he judge your people in righteousness, "'your afflicted ones with justice. "'May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, "'the hills the fruit of righteousness. "'May he defend the afflicted among the people "'and save the children of the needy. "'May he crush the oppressor. "'May he endure as long as the sun, "'as long as the moon through all generations.'" May he be like rain falling on a moan field, like showers watering the earth. In his days may the righteousness flourish and the prosperity abound until the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him, for he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May grain abound throughout the land and the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This king, this king described here, encompasses the hope for Israel's future, the hope for the world's future. The king described here in Psalm 72 goes so far beyond comprehension. He is so much more than just a good king. This king brings a comprehensive overhaul of the entire world. He rules righteously He oversees an incredible economy that blesses people with wealth and provision. He defends the weak. He defeats evil. His enemies submit to him. He puts an end to violence, and not just because violence is bad, but because he desperately loves and cherishes his people who that violence hurts. Food is plentiful and flourishing throughout the entire world in this kingdom. And his reign is comprehensive and worldwide, and it's never-ending, and it endures Forever, at least until the sun and the moon disappear. But we'll, we'll go with forever. Church, the foundation of our faith is based on this king. The one longed hoped for, the fact that he was born long ago to a young woman blessed and highly favored by God, her name was Mary. This king was born in a quiet night in a cave where traveling animals were kept and laid to rest after his arrival in a feeding Trough. He was without riches or earthly inheritance, and yet he was the heir to heaven itself. He was born under a sky that screamed with joy. The stars aligned to herald his arrival, and then were outshined by a platoon of angels that appeared over a remote field. This was the king long dreamed of, long hoped for. He'd arrived. Church, I want us in this moment, in these final days as we approach the Christmas season to capture the immensity of hope on display in this moment. The men and women and children rescued at the end of the conflict in World War II or out of those death camps had their hopes fulfilled that their oppressive captors had been defeated. Their hopes were realized that the threat of imminent death was removed. The soldiers celebrated the end of the conflict just weeks later, and they were filled with joy because they had survived that gauntlet of war. Their hopes were realized because they were returning home, even though many like Rachel's grandfather would return to a parent who had died, a spouse who had left, siblings who were left behind buried on foreign soil, and yet they were still overcome with joy in the wash of hope realized. The people of the greater European continent celebrated. The hopes realized that their homes would no longer be threatened by an invading force, that their food supply would no longer be in jeopardy, that their lives would be freed from imminent violence and oppression. Joy burst forth across the land, and rightfully so. This was a massive, magnificent, monumental moment. The war was over. But those hopes, even those hopes as massive and as consequential as they were, they were hopes realized that were just a short-term solution to a much more deeply rooted problem, a problem as old as humanity. The immensity of our hope realized dwarfs the hopes of even the end of world wars. The hope of the coming of Jesus means not just the end of a war, it means the end of all war. The hope of the coming of Jesus means not just that a famine ends today, but that hunger will be defeated. The hope of the coming of Jesus means that we will not just escape this momentary threat of violence, but he will take the ultimate violence upon himself to end it for all. The hope of the coming of Jesus does not just mean one cruel leader will be deposed, but that all competition for the throne will be shamed. That's the immensity of the hope represented in the Christmas season. It's a hope realized that all things wrong will be made right as God returns to his world to claim it because he loves it deeply. Hark, the herald angels sing. Joy to the world and glory to the newborn king. Church, the hope of the coming of Jesus, the one that that hope offers to the world Is one that calms all fears and meets all needs and all hopes. It's the deepest longings of the heart are all met in this child. The deepest of our hurts and issues of our existence are brought to bear in this moment as God himself descends to rescue. All our hopes are caught up here. Caught up in this one who lays in the quiet night that Christmas morning so long ago. Because his coming upends everything and brings hope to the hopeless places. His coming uncovers false hopes as being at best lesser answers to the deep and lasting questions of our world and our lives. Money, leaders, politics, even peace are all lesser hopes trying to capture our imaginations and our hearts with a hope that may be good, but it's fading, giving way to the need for yet another hope to take its place. Jesus is the hope that overrides all hope. Jesus is the hope that rattles the cages of those smaller hopes. Jesus is the hope that says to kings and powers of the rule, the rulers, the powers of the world, that the true king has come. Even the kings of Jesus' day in that moment, the ones who ruled with a cruel and harsh fist over the land, knew the impact of this coming. The great theologian G.K. Chesterton says it this way: Even Herod, the great king felt that earthquake under him and swayed within his swaying palace at the arrival of Jesus. Church, we live in a world desperate for hope. They desperately need it. And there is no shortage of lesser hopes on offer. No shortages of answers that will solve the tensions and longings of the world. My Nintendo Entertainment System fulfilled the longings of that little 10-year-old boy on Christmas morning. My joy was immense. My joy was real. But in retrospect, it's so obviously easy to see how that hope was anything if it was not fleeting. That gift brought great joy, but that joy faded and dissipated and eventually disappeared, punctuated by the fact that just a few short years later, it was bundled up, sold at a garage sale to fund a Sega Genesis. Isn't that the story of our lives? Story of the lives of humanity, desperately seeking from hope to hope, bouncing from longing to longing, wanting to find and realize hope that will finally quell our greatest fears, fears of loss, injustice, death. It occurred to me as I was thinking about this war path that the 9th Infantry Division waged across Northern Africa and Europe that they engaged in a battle for the future of the world, but victory didn't secure all the hope that it promised. Declaring victory on V-Day didn't fix the immense devastation that the world had experienced in the evil effects of war. There was still carnage everywhere. There was loss. There was heartache. For many people in many places, joy came to them in the form of a message delivered. The war has ended. Rejoice. Help is on the way. What has been broken and destroyed will be restored. Christmas is similar in that way. We, the church, us who hold fast to the truth that Jesus is the king that reigns and brings hope to fix all that has been broken, the war has ended, truly ended. Who will tell this story? Who will proclaim and rejoice? Us. We will. Our stories, our lives, our joy, our celebration, our hope realized will proclaim to the world that all hostilities have come to a close and that the good king has come in victory. Your neighbors, your families, your communities, your co workers, they're desperate for a hope that satisfies. They're desperate to realize hope. Desperate for a hope that delivers. Are you? This Christmas, Will you be freshly swayed by the immensity of hope realized by the birth of this child? Or will you be lured once again by lesser hopes, destined to be temporary at best, complete failures at worst? This Christmas, will you joyfully proclaim the victory of God in His Son, Jesus? This Christmas, will you be captured by the hope of the world born in a manger? May His name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the Christmas season and the gift it is to your church and your world. God, we pray that this year we as your people would be captured by the immensity of hope represented in this season. God, you did not just come to make our lives better. You came to save. You did not just come to improve things. You came to radically reshape it because you're good and you love your people and your world. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift that he is, one that we do not deserve and cannot earn, and yet you give him to us freely. We pray this in his name. Amen.